Welcome listeners to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today, we have a very special treat. We have a special guest, writer, editor, author, Leah M. Johnson. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're very glad to have you. Also, everybody should know Leah is a friend, kind of co-worker, okay, you'll find out, of Samantha Winkler, who we spoke to a couple weeks ago. So after everyone hears this amazing interview, go back and check out Samantha's amazing interview and everything will be better for it. So, Leah, how did this magic come about? How are you like, I gotta write a picture book. I gotta get this going. I definitely didn't start in the picture book world. I would say that I've always been a writer. You talk to people all the time that say, I wanna be a writer, I wanna publish a book. And I always say to them, are you writing right now? Because if you're writing right now, you're a writer. I'm an educator by trade. And so I spend a lot of time talking to kids, teenagers about their stories. And storytelling has always been really important to me as a person and as an educator. I started writing back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s when blogging was a thing. Ah. I was at home with two small children. My husband is in the Air Force and was deployed all the time. Mm. And I started writing to reach out to the rest of the world and try to make connections with people because I was at home changing diapers. I started kind of gaining some traction in that world. And then over time, the blogging world shifted and that wasn't really the medium that a lot of people were using anymore. I still had a lot of people saying to me, hey, we wanna read what you write. We enjoy your writing. And so fast forward a few years, I decided I was gonna start writing some stories about just different life experiences I'd had and see about publishing them. Most of what I was writing at the time was for adults. That was sort of my goal was to write creative nonfiction memoir for adults. In fact, in the year 2003, I traveled to West Africa on a hospital ship. And when I came back, I went to see department chair of the English department at my university just to check in and say hi to her. Told her that I just returned from this adventure in West Africa. And she said, you should write that story. So I started grad school kind of by accident because she said, I'm going to sign you up for grad school. And she handed me a tuition waiver and said, I want to see you write this story, which is a really miraculous, wonderful thing, an opportunity that she gave me. So I wrote that story first, and it was well-received. And at that point, I got kind of addicted to being in writing critique groups and just being around other creators. Fast forward again, and I found myself in Southern Illinois. That's how I met Samantha the wonderful writer and illustrator, Samantha Winkler. We were in the same critique group in Southern Illinois. I decided to join this critique group because I had some stories that I thought maybe were for kids, but I didn't really know much about publishing children's books. I'd only really written for adults at that point. It's kind of a funny story now, looking back at it. I brought in a 3,000 word, what I thought was a picture book. Wow. (laughs) We should just clarify how many words does a picture book usually have. Oh, like a thousand is too many. So I wasn't even in the ballpark. And it wasn't bad writing, but I went in and these people who had been critiquing one another's writing for a long time, they told me, this isn't a picture book. This is 3,000 words. And that was sort of my introduction to like, maybe I don't know what I'm doing here. I could maybe learn from these people who know a little bit more than I do. Over time, I wrote many books with that group of friends and critique partners. And the one that is being published this spring is called Sister. It is a picture book that I wrote in 2019 as really a cathartic experience for myself and it was the one that everyone in the group said 
this is it. This is the one. I started then pursuing publication and partnered with another critique member, Katie Odie, who was at the time branching out to start her own independent publishing company. And she asked, and I was very honored to say yes, if she could publish my book as their first project. Well, okay, follow-up questions. First of all, you said your husband's in the Air Force, so thanks to your husband for his service and thanks to you for supporting his service. Oh, sure. When you said that you were blogging and things like that or storytelling and educator, et cetera, was always kind of part of you, are you saying when you were in college, you were pursuing writing as a thing? Yes, my bachelor's degree was in English education. That was my plan. I was going to be an English teacher. But then I married the Air Force and that made it really difficult. We were like moving in the middle of a school year. I decided to go to Africa for a while. I was a young person. I was doing young people things. I came back and had this opportunity to go to grad school while my husband was in pilot training. That's really the first time that I wrote substantially for an audience and got a lot of really positive feedback where I thought, well, maybe I can do something with this. How did you land on a boat to Africa? My dad ran a nonprofit when I was growing up that started as a ecumenical missions effort, a Christian missions effort. Over time, it morphed into long-term sustainability projects all over the world where he was building schools and hospitals and just doing all kinds of good work around the world, finding partners and pairing them with resources. So I grew up in this world where we did a good bit of traveling into places where we met people who were ingenuitive and had great ideas, but didn't necessarily have the material resources to put those ideas into action. So I grew up doing a lot of collaborative work around the world in ways that were community building. And so when I graduated from college, I just really wanted to travel to West Africa because it was a part of the world that I hadn't traveled before. It was just this spirit of sort of adventure and wanting to go to a new place. So there is an organization called Mercy Ships. It is a traveling hospital ship. And and they dock off the coast of different places around the world. There's multiple ships and they need all kinds of people to help run the ship. So I'm not a medical professional. I wasn't doing eye surgery. My job on the ship, I actually worked in hospitality. We would host visiting diplomats and dignitaries from wherever the country, wherever we were docked. I made a lot of cookies. So the medical staff and the nursing staff, they would rotate through. They would come volunteer their time for six months or sometimes they'd be there for two weeks. And then you had engineers that had to actually run the ship. You had all kinds of people, people working in the finance department. So there was this constant flow of people from about 50 different countries oh. coming on and off the ship. And so somebody had to change the beds when new people yeah. <laughs> came up to the ship and get them settled in the rooms and things like that. That was my job. In the meantime, as I helped kind of run the hospitality on the ship, we would have all these opportunities to also go in country and actually do really fun things. I ended up spending about five months primarily in the countries of Ghana and Togo, but we dropped several places during that time oh Whoa. and Sierra Leone we spent about two months in Sierra Leone it's like its own little world the ship almost people coming yeah. in and out so many different parts to it so much wow yeah, there's a lot of fun stories. So when I went back to get my master's degree, that's what I wrote my master's thesis about. It was called Failing Mercies. Well, it wasn't called Failing Mercies. It was called Falling Mercies. The university printed my official master's thesis, and on the spine of it, they printed it wrong. <laughs> and it's called Failing Mercies for, like, perpetuity, which oh. is just funny to me. Because it was called The Mercy Ship, and I was also really inspired by Anne Lamott, her memoir. It's called Traveling Mercies, and I was on The Mercy 
leadership. And so the title of my master's thesis was Falling Mercies. And it was the story of a really unique living situation. We had about 50 countries represented, 350 people on the ship. There were about 50 kids on the ship that they were there full time going to school. So there were school teachers. So I wrote all about that. And that was my master's thesis. A lot of my life was kind of accidental. Like I accidentally went to grad school. Well, you don't accidentally go to grad school. The position comes up when you don't expect it and then you go. Yeah, it literally was. I went to see the department chair and I was telling her about my story of being off the coast of West Africa. And she was like, we've got this great writer in residence here. You should just take a couple classes. And I said, well, I haven't applied for grad school. And she said, well, I can take care of that for you. Oh, wow. I was like, okay. And then I literally went to class that night. So... It really was kind of accidental. Later, I accidentally started a nonprofit because I grew up in this world and I had all these connections kind of all over the world with people that were doing great things. These opportunities would pop up here and there to help with things. So I met a woman at one point. Her name was Amy Williams. She was working in southern Uganda. She was working on maternal health care in a pretty rural area. She told me, I want to build a placenta pit which is exactly what it sounds like. And she said, it'll cost us about $1,400 to build a placenta pit and latrines for the moms that come to this maternity center and give birth. And they had built the center, but they didn't have the bathrooms or this placenta pit. I said, well, I feel like I could just ask my friends and we could probably come up with that money. And so that's what I did. We built a placenta pit. And at the time, my dad was running this nonprofit and it was kind of the same kind of stuff that he was doing all the time. And so I called him and I said, hey, can we get a line item in the budget at the nonprofit where I could have people donate money. So we have somewhere to store the money. I don't want to just take money from people and then not have a place to keep it and have an official record of this. And he said, yeah, that's fine. What do you want to call the line item? And I said, let's call it somebody's mama. Keep in mind, I'm a mom. Most of my friends are moms. We've all got small children at home. And we're also going to be helping somebody's mama, right? All these moms that are having babies in rural Uganda. And so I said, let's call it somebody's mama. And then that way everybody knows in the drop down menu, pick that. That's where your donation goes. That's what we did. And then over time, we kept finding these small projects like that. We weren't doing huge things. We were just doing small things together, raising a few hundred dollars here and there. And so eventually someone was like, I think this is a thing. I think yeah. what you're doing is a thing. <laughs> and so long story short, we ended up creating a nonprofit and getting our 501c3. From that point forward, I ran it for about five years and we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars through crowdfunded grant writing. So we would partner with an organization that was building a school in Cambodia and they needed $14,000 to cover the supplies that they didn't have the money for yet. And our people would raise that money and we'd help build a school. So that's what we did. And so I have like a lot lot of really fun stories from that. So a lot of my writing is informed with my experiences of having cross-cultural collaboration and just stories that really center on hard things and people doing hard things together. It's kind of the core of my writing. So how that relates to the book, I brought this book to the group, like I said earlier, as sort of a catharsis because our family decided in 2016 to get a foster care license. We decided to become a foster family. We fostered and eventually we had two sisters that we ended up adopting through foster care. I found myself sort of at the end of that journey with our two girls and just feeling a lot of feelings. Some of those feelings had to do with the fact that I feel like a lot of people have misconceptions about what foster care is and what adoption means. I wanted to write a book that both represented our family and also represented foster care and adoption 
in a respectful way and in a truthful way. And I started looking, scouring the market, what books are out there that show how real world foster care and adoption happens. What I found is there were a lot of great books that were therapeutic in nature. There were a lot of middle grade and young adult books that centered kids in care, but there wasn't really anything in the picture book market that looked like a picture of so many families that I know. So I got this idea to write this book about a family that fosters and then eventually does adopt one of the placements. That was how Sister got started. Wow. Okay. So just to say it, the name of the book is called Sister and it is about foster care that leads to adoption. Yes. And it's a journey because in the beginning of the book, there's foster care that doesn't lead to adoption. And that's one of the things that I wanted to highlight is because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about foster care. And one of those is that people go into fostering because they want to adopt. Sometimes that is why people go into foster care. We went into foster care because we wanted to see families be able to stay together. And we wanted to bridge the gap for kids who had to come into care for whatever reason. And we did that. We bridged the gap for some kids. In the case with our girls, it did end in an adoption, but that was never the goal to begin with. In talking with people about foster care and talking to people about adoption, I found that a lot of people think that the whole point of foster care is to adopt. The reality is that the whole point of foster care is to reunify kids with their parents when their parents have been given a chance to kind of get themselves together. So I wanted that message. I wanted to kind of fix some of those misconceptions. And I also wanted to speak to the complexity of emotion involved in all of it. Because the other misconception that kind of perpetuates itself in social media and movies and shows is that you see a lot of these celebrations of adoption. It's adoption day and everybody's in cute clothes with matching t-shirts. And don't get me wrong, we had matching t-shirts. You should absolutely get matching t-shirts anytime that you want matching t-shirts. But that's the beginning of something. In the same way that you spend a bunch of money to have a wedding, but it's the marriage where the working out happens. And there's both joy and grief involved in working out a marital relationship. It's the same thing with adoption, where adoption day is a celebration on some level, but you've got a lot lot of years of working out the joy and grief of what adoption represents. Well, well, so, and however much you want to answer about this kind of stuff, but you say that people foster, they're coming into as a temporary kind of... It's a stopgap measure. Right. So for whatever reason, these children, their parents' parent can be with them right now, but the plan is that they will be with them and will be the caretakers until you're ready to be the caretaker again. Right. Ideally, that's how it should work. The vast majority of kids that come into care, it's usually for neglect or related to parent drug and alcohol abuse. Those are the top two reasons why kids are brought into care. And so a lot of times what's needed is a plan. The parents need help to figure out how to parent. Parenting's hard. And so there's a lot of complex issues that go into kids being brought into care. The reality is over half of kids nationwide end up reunifying with their parents. What I see in, like I said, on TV and in movies is it seems like foster care always leads to adoption. And a lot of times those stories center on the adoptive parents and that being sort of like the happy ending. But the reality is the happy ending for me as a foster parent is when kids get to go back to their parents. There's also a good portion of kids in care. Maybe they don't get to go back to their parents, but they do get to go back to their family of origin. And that's a happy ending for me as well. Like a grandparent? Yeah, grandparents or an aunt and uncle or someone where they're still connected with that family of origin. Blood relatives. Yeah, exactly. And so that is something 
that I just think we have kind of a skewed perspective on how foster care is supposed to work and what the purpose of foster care is. And I don't want to do it in a didactic way where I'm trying to teach people something, but I wanted to portray a story. I wanted to tell a story of a family that experienced kind of the multifaceted nature of foster care. When foster care leads to adoption, maybe not always, but that often means that the parent who has drugs or alcohol, they try to clean up and they didn't. Right. So in general, with kids that are in care, their parents are put on what's called a service plan. And a service plan can include anything from you have to meet minimal parenting standards in that you have to have running water, you have to have adequate food and supplies to care for children. Sometimes those service plans include things like going to drug and alcohol rehab or different kinds of therapy. Sometimes it's an anger management class because maybe there was some abuse involved. It always involves parenting classes. That's something that's kind of across the board. Let's give parents skills to know how to handle those high stress situations that led to a kid being in care. And so the ideal way that that works is that a parent is given the service plan and they are able to satisfy the requirements of that service plan and then reunification happens. But adoption, there might be a foster family that will foster, but even if the child needs to be adopted, they might not be the one to adopt. Yeah, some families go into it and they're very clear with their boundaries that we are only fostering. We have no desire to adopt. And that happens a lot. And I've known lots and lots of families that have fostered dozens of children over the years where some of those have been reunified with their families of origin. And then some of them have moved on to adoption with another family because those foster families don't want to adopt. There's about 125,000 kids in care right now that are adoptable, meaning their parental rights have been terminated and they are just either in homes or they're in group homes available for adoption. Do you still foster now that you've adopted or now that you've adopted your focus shifts now? So we adopted our girls in 2019 was when the adoption went through. They came to live with us in late 2016 and early 2017. They are biological half-sisters, and so they came to us at different times. But it took about two and a half years before our case was over, between when they were brought into care and then when the adoption was final. And so we took a good break because we needed a breather. And within the adoption community, people talk about cocooning, which means, you know, you bring everybody into the cocoon. You just try to stay real close and make those connections and those attachments that are needed before opening your family back up to the rest of the world. Of course, then that led into the pandemic. So it was kind of Lots perfect of timing for us <laughs> to cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> we would have taken a break anyway, just to sort of have a, a moment. And then our family actually moved from Southern Illinois to Washington State during that time. Since then, we've moved to Virginia. And when we got to Virginia, we did apply for a foster care license here and started providing respite care. And we've been doing that for about the last eight months. What does it mean, respite care? So respite care is something that if you're not wanting to take a full-time placement, a full-time placement would be a kid comes to your home, they live with you, you're in charge of all of their needs. But respite care is something that is really needed in foster care because you've got foster families who have kids in their care and maybe the couple wants to go away for the weekend for their anniversary. Well, it's really hard to find childcare. And so respite families will say, we'll watch your two kids, three kids for the weekend so that you can go away. There are other situations where in respite where maybe they're going somewhere on vacation and because of the service plan, the children aren't allowed to leave the state because they have to see their bio parents four times that week. So respite families can step in and say, we'll cover to make sure that they're going to all their visits and still staying on schedule while you guys go do this thing. And sometimes it's just 
parents need a break. They know that we've been trained because a lot of these kids come from pretty hard places and they don't need just a random babysitter. They need people who really understand the trauma that they've endured and the situation that they're experiencing by no fault of their own. And so providing respite care, we get to step in and say, hey, we've got your kid and they're safe. You can rest assured that they're going to be taken care of while you're gone. You have your own biological children in addition to the children that you adopted. I do. I have four kids. My boys are 17 and 14. They are biological. And then our girls we adopted and they are now seven and six. Oh, much younger than your kids. Yeah, we call it second round parenting. Because (laughs) the first time we made all the mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing because we were young and we'd never done it before. And so our girls get the benefit of us knowing what we're doing. But on the flip side, we're also old now. And so (laughs) we're kind of tired. So I'm not sure which of the kids got the best parents. (laughs) Well, it's different versions of best. They did. They got different versions of us. So your book, as a kid's book, it's told from the point of view of a child in a home whose parents are doing this, correct? Yes. It's actually told from the perspective of the biological child. So it is a family that is a mom and a dad, and they have a young girl who is about five years old at the beginning of the book. And she tells the story through the eyes of a child. And I did that really specifically because when I think about picture books, we have a lot of books in our house. we got a lot of kids, a lot of books. And when I look at picture books, those characters in picture books, you want your kids to relate to them. You want your kids to look at them and go, oh, I'm just like Little Critter or Fancy Nancy or whoever the book character is. When I was looking, like I said, at the market, there weren't any books told from the perspective of a foster family's biological child. There weren't any. And I thought about my boys. They were 8 and 11 when we started fostering. And that must have been odd for them to kind of be thrown into this world of we might have extra kids this weekend or for a long time. They had to adjust to all of that. That was really the inspiration behind it is I wanted to see through the eyes of a child what this was like and to also give my kids a book that represents their experience. There's a lot of conversations about representation in children's books, and I am so on board with seeing all of us represented. Whoever you are, your kids need to be able to see themselves in a book. For me to write a book that represents my kids feels like the best assignment for me as a writer. Did you show your kids a draft of it and be like, does this sound familiar? Or kind of gauge <laughs> the reaction to make sure you're actually interpreting it all kind of correctly? Yeah, my kids have all seen the book, saw it before it was a book. The boys in particular, because they had been through the process of watching kids come in and out of our home, they gave me a lot of really great feedback. They really helped me infuse a lot of it with humor, because as heavy as a subject as it is, when you're dealing with kids, there's just always so many funny things that happen. Little kids are funny, and so they really helped me stay young in that way, where I would ask them, does this sound like an something an adult would say or is this something that a kid would say they gave me perspective on that this might be a little bit of of a clunky question so i have a friend her and her husband they adopted babies she did this whole talk about the language that they use because when the babies are going to grow older they speak to them about how when we got you from the hospital and your parents they made a heroic decision to give you a life that they couldn't give you kind of thing etc so on the one hand it's like no one's hiding you were adopted but you're our kids but you're dealing you have both with the biological and the adopted kids is there language like that especially if the girls were a little bit older so they kind of know like they came to your house it's a really delicate thing right it's a really delicate situation as a parent to have a blended family the way that we do and we consider it a blended family 
In the same way that you've got two parents who already have kids and come together in a second marriage. It is very similar to that. And we have chosen, and it's not the choice that everyone makes, but we have chosen to keep lines of communication very open with the girl's first family. And that's how we refer to their biological family as their first family. And they know that their first mom and their first dads contributed to them being alive. They know that. As they get older, the conversation shifts and changes with their understanding of how the world works. I believe this across the board. I don't care what we're talking about. I believe in telling the truth. And when it comes to kids, you obviously have to do that in an age appropriate way. But I think I've learned both in my mothering experience, but more importantly, I've learned from other adoptees in my life because we're of a generation where I have a lot of friends that were adopted. Even our parents' generation, they may not have even known they were adopted, but my generation did know they were adopted. I had so many friends that had varied experiences, some whose families were very open, told them anything they wanted to know. I had others that had closed adoptions who never knew who their family of origin was. Just on a personal level where we've landed is that we think that things should be as open and honest as possible. We refer to their family as first family. When we travel through the area where their first family lives, we go to see them. We'll meet up for ice cream, have a meal together. And it's one of those things where I always tell people, especially adoptive parents, you have the honor and responsibility of controlling that narrative. If you make it weird, it's going to be weird. But all my girls know as their story of family is that they had a first family that made them and they have a second family that's raising them. And we're all part of an extended family. And that's their normal. They don't think that's weird. And just recently, we had a, an event in the Girl Scout troop where we were supposed to be talking about where our families came from. And of course, among adoptive families, the family tree projects are like the bane of our existence. Well, yeah. <laughs> There's just a lot of conversations that happen that you're not, we don't really need to do this again, do we? <laughs> but they happen. And so this was part of this Girl Scout activity where we were talking about not only our family trees, but where did our ancestors come from? And there's so many things that can be learned from those lessons. But here, my seven-year-old and six-year-old are supposed to stand in front of a room of people and explain what adoption means. It's a weird position to put kids in. And so I just asked the troop leader if I could come and stand with them and kind of explain what adoption was. It ended up being a really, I think my girls did a beautiful job of explaining it. The way that we described it to their friends and their Girl Scout troop is that we don't have a family tree. We have an orchard. We've got a lot of trees that are planted right next to each other. And that's what they know. That's our story. That's the story that I want out in the world is that there's a lot of families like ours out there and we need books about us. So the language that you use, that you call it first family versus biological family or something like that, yeah. what's that decision? And I'm not offended by the biological designation. I think just because they were little when they came to us, to say biological doesn't really mean anything. As oh. they get older, I think using that terminology is totally fine. And I also think using the term, especially first mom, our oldest daughter does remember being with her mom some. And I think it's a way of honoring their first mom. Calling her their biological mother, there's a separation there on some level. And just because I'm the mom that's raising them doesn't mean that that's not also their mom. That's a choice we've made. I know lots of people who have made different choices, and I don't judge anyone for that. We're all learning as we go. 
but that's the language we've taught them because we want them to feel free to talk about her. And so sometimes they'll tell a story and they'll say, remember that time that my first mom did such and such? And then I know what they're talking about. I know where we are in their storytelling. It's the choice we've made. But like the, the conversation around like biological mothers or biological fathers, I think that's fine too. It just doesn't necessarily translate yet to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. So it seemed like besides for the technical, just pronouncing or whatever, it just seemed like first family was like a warmer term, would you say? Yeah, I okay. think it's warmer. I think it's more inclusive. I think it also allows, from a narrative standpoint, it allows this kind of linear thing that happened. Like at the beginning of your life, you were with these people, and then now you're with us, and now we're all sort of one big extended family. You spoke about how you had the, the book and it was ready, and Katie Odie offered to publish it. Did you try to send it to other publishers first, or just because you knew her, you jumped at the opportunity to work with her? I have queried a lot of books. I have been in the query trenches in the very traditional way that everybody, I've done it all. I'm a pretty, I would say once I'm into something, I'm pretty dedicated to that thing. And so I spent a good deal of time querying not only this book, but other books. Publishing is a, it's a business. While it's painful to be rejected, of course it is, I also understand that some of the books that I've written for the gatekeepers of publishing, they don't seem very marketable. And I'm just being really honest about that. There is a lot of gatekeeping that happens in publishing that is starting to get better. But for a long time, there was a very specific formula to what editors and agents were looking for. It was a tried and true method that made a lot of people a lot of money. And so I get it. That's the business of publishing. But some of my other books were also kind of outside the box, so to speak, in terms of characters and plot. And I would often go to writing conferences or I'd have situations where there was some sort of meet the agent or meet the editor. And I would always get really glowing feedback. But their second reaction was always, we're not sure how to market this. And I think that's something that a lot of writers here. I yes. don't think that's unique to me. And it's one of those things where if someone is coming from a very specific background and they have that formula that they like to use as an agent or an editor, that's what they're going to stick with. And I get it. But for instance, I wrote a story that was told from multiple narrators, a middle grade book, and two of the narrators were American boys and two of the narrators were Ghanaian girls. And it was written from my life experience. I have a lot of friends in Ghana and it was written sort of inspired by, not based on, but inspired by some of the kids of my friends in Ghana. And at one point, one editor said, this is so good, but I don't know if American kids will want to read this. It's such a terrible statement for lots of reasons. Yeah, I can't um, stand it when they do that. Yeah. And so, you know what? That wasn't the editor for me. That person wasn't into me. And remember that? book and movie like he's just not that into you from like, way back that's what I kept thinking as I was in the querying trenches was, they're just yeah. not that into me you know I need to move on until I find the person who is it's not just characters they'll say it about they'll say it about genres they'll say it about like almost anything which I guess is yeah. also their way of saying I've never worked with this before and I don't know if I'm willing to take the jump right now yeah so, yeah. yeah not that I've never been salty about it of course I've gotten salty sometimes where I'm like but I'm a good writer I want to say like but you just told me that the writing is really good so why can't we published this book. I've yeah, had those yeah. moments, but <laughs> in the big picture, I've just thought to myself, they're still trying to make money. That is the goal. So in publishing, I think it always is about whether it's finding that agent relationship or the editor relationship, finding those relationships in publishing. It's always about finding the people that care about the things you care about. I love that we're starting to see all these indie publishers kind of come up and kind of buck the system a little bit. I mean, I'm named after Princess Leia. I have rebel in my blood. <laughs> <I got> to... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's who I am. So like, I love that there are people going, nobody wants to publish my fill in the blank story because it's too weird for the industry. So I'm just going to start a publishing company and I'm going to publish those stories because those stories deserve to be told. I applaud all of that. And that's what Katie Odie is doing. She is trying to do something different. She has published books traditionally, but she has also come up against those gatekeepers repeatedly throughout her writing experience. And so finally she said, you know what, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this in my own hands and do something with it. Like I said, it's an honor that she would even consider me, but she believes in it. She cares about things I care about. And she was like, if you'll take a chance on me as a first time indie publisher, I am ready to jump in with you as a first time published author. So yeah, that's not a traditional way of getting published, but it's the way I'm getting published. <laughs> but hey, one thing about the indie publishers, they may not have the large business side of the traditional publishers is that, like you said, if I like it, I'll do it. Obviously, they're not going to yeah. be absolutely reckless. That's the point of the indie publishers. They could take certain chances that the other gatekeepers might not be willing to take. Right. I think there's something also to consider here is that the industry is in major flux right now. Anybody who's paying attention can recognize things are shifting a lot. And with the very rapidly changing landscape of self-publishing and hybrid publishing and indie publishing, all of these options are out there. And I think I wrote a great book. Just to be honest with you, I think I wrote, wrote a great book. And I think there's an audience for my book. And I just needed somebody to take a chance on me. And then I'm ready to hustle. I'm ready to do it. And I've done the research, I've done the work in terms of what it takes to successfully market a book, all that. So, you know, wish me luck. Here we go. Good luck. <laughs> I feel so grateful that Katie was willing to take a chance on me because it could flop. There's no reward without risk. The creative life isn't one where you don't take chances. I think she knows that and she's ready to take it on. And like I said, there's an audience for this book. In any given calendar year, over 600,000 kids go through care. Wow. That's not a small number. Yeah, we have no. 300 million people in the United States. 600,000 kids go through care in any given calendar year. 400,000 kids are in care right now. Wow. There are a lot of families out there that are fostering that when they see a book and it's like, oh, hey, that's like our family. We had a baby that came and lived with us and then went to live with his grandma. We had a little boy who lived with us for a year and then got to go home to his mom. These are experiences that this is not a unique experience. There are hundreds of thousands of families that are doing this every single day in the United States. Amazing. Just a quick question before we wrap up. Getting the illustration done, she told you, oh, we're going to be working with Samantha. And you're like, yeah, I know her. It's going to be great. I'm just yes. assuming this is what happened, you know. But then did most of the interaction go through? You spoke to Katie about these are kind of just things that I really want. And then she dealt with Samantha. Did you deal with Samantha directly at all? Or just that yeah, kind of so how that works? This yeah. is one of the things that Katie really wants to turn on its head. This is one of the aspects of the children's publishing industry that is really backwards. And that is that there's no collaboration between authors and illustrators in general. I've had friends that have written books, gotten them published, and they didn't see the illustrations until the dummy copy came out. And they had no input. And to me, that's crazy. That just doesn't make sense that an, uh, an author wouldn't at least give notes something. And it doesn't mean that the illustrator has to take all those notes, but it should be a collaborative process. And so Katie, that's something that she really feels strongly about is she's like, if we are making quality picture books, we want to make sure that they're thematically cohesive from writing to illustrating. It was really a collaborative process between the three of us but Sam and I had many many conversations where there are a couple things in the illustrations where I was like this is really important to me that this is included but then I let her do her thing I didn't say on page one I want this to look like this I just said I want this included what like one of the things I wanted included is I wanted the other kids who come through their home who this family does not adopt 
those other kids, I want there to be pictures of those kids. Like, they're still connected to them in some way. And it doesn't even have to be a plot point. It's just in the background. Let me see a picture of that baby somewhere. And that was just important to me. That was like a personal thing that if nobody else ever noticed it, it was for me. Because that's what it's been like in our fostering experiences. We still have connections to kids who have come through our home but didn't stay forever. He really dialed into a couple things like that. And I had other suggestions. I was like, I thought about this and she would kind of listen. But then when she brought the first version to me, she just blew it out of the water. I never in a million years could have imagined how beautiful she made the book. The little details that she included. She made the mom, she sculpts trees into animal shapes. Oh my goodness. I I don't know what the word is for that. That's her job. She's like a champion tree designer and the dad's a firefighter. I never said make the dad a firefighter, but it totally fits. It totally makes sense in the context of the book. Like that's why she's the illustrator. That's what she's good at. Part of it was I just trusted her to do the thing I knew she was good at. Yeah. I don't know if she's told you this directly, but she told me that she was mad at you for the book because you made her cry. She said it's so sweet, the story. I feel like it's mutual. I'm very angry at her as well because she sent me the, digitally just sent me the first copy. I happened to be with my mom and my kids were all there and I said, oh my gosh, the book, we can look at the book. And there's one page in particular where the little girl in the story is really sad. I burst into tears. I was reading it out loud to everyone and I just burst into tears. Oh my gosh, this is so sad and it's so silly because I wrote the book. I shouldn't be surprised by this. And yet she had just so captured the emotion of that moment it was this moment in the book that's full of disappointment kind of hopelessness and she captured it on a page with no words just her illustration and I mean I just bawled like a baby so I am also angry at (laughs) well I'm glad we're fostering this resentment here you guys could both be mad at each other for being so good That's amazing. We always wrap up with fill in the blank of I really like it when and choosing anything storytelling related. I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, agents, book covers, illustrations, bookstores, libraries, whatever, stories, do X and I really don't like. storytelling related. Well, I think book related. I'm throwing out a bunch of nouns, but you could choose your own if I haven't said it. So I really like when X and I really don't like when X. Off the cuff, soapbox answer, whatever you want. I really like it when stories are conventional but unexpected. So when you've got a story that feels so familiar and warm, like a blanket with hot tea, and you're like, I know this story already, and then all of a sudden there's some kind of surprise. You're like, oh, I was not expecting that at all. This is where we're going, and we're going a totally different direction than what we thought. Those are my favorite stories. I really don't like it when stories are wrapped up with a red bow and a happy ending. I abhor happy ending. I enjoy a story with resolution. I don't want an open-ended thing where I don't know what happened or it feels unresolved in some way, but I don't necessarily like stories that have really happy endings because I don't think that's how life works. I think even when things end in a happy-ish way, I just think life is more complicated than that. Okay, so yes to resolution, no to kind of this like perfect, tidy, happy ending. Yeah, like the lifetime movie where like all the couples pair off including like the assistant <laughs> okay. where you're like well it's just not that tidy yeah and I okay. know, like Shakespeare did it Shakespeare would always it was like by the end of the play you were like well somebody has to pair off with somebody else yeah at the end of all these comedies like we don't all have to get married on the same day people calm yeah. down <laughs> okay. yeah and there's that, not only one way to be happy at the end because we only ended at a certain 
point in time. We don't know what's going to happen to you in five years from now. You might yes. end up on a ship to Africa. We don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Fine. Very good. Leah, thank you so much. It's been such a treat to speak with you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Leah M. Johnson. To find out more about Leah and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Check us out at eltenabout.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.